welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, the official podcast of thepinksmoke.com, co-founded by myself, John Cribbs, head writer. I'm here today with Mr. Eric Frender, who is an Emmy Award-winning editor, writer, filmmaker, and frequent contributor to the Pink Smoke. Eric, nice to Hi. have you. Uh, it's nice to be here. That makes it sound like I've won lots of Emmys for lots of different things, which is not entirely true. But thank you for the kind introduction. Well, it's funny. Anytime you see a preview where it says Oscar award winner, yada, and in your head, you're like, they only won one Oscar. This makes it sound like there's some. Yeah, there should, I feel like, there should, like, I feel like the, the, the punctuation wasn't correct in that. And it made it seem like I had won. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> You've won an Emmy, which is one more Emmy than most of us have won. Right, we've already spoken too much about this Emmy, but thank you for the kind <laughs> I know of- you're embarrassed that you're an Emmy award-winning individual. Um, it's better than being a, a student who works in a library, at least. I'll say that. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Eric, I need to ask you a question. Have you ever dreamed of tangerines? I have not. And it's funny you mentioned that because I just read recently, I guess I knew this before, but in preparation for this, I was, you know, doing my homework and the name is based on a misheard lyric from Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Can you corroborate this fact? I've never heard it. Uh, it's, I guess it's tangerine trees or I don't know. It's something, there's some, it's been a while since I did a deep dive into Sergeant Pepper, but, uh, it's yeah, it's something like lyric. tangerine trees and marmalade skies or something. Yeah, like. it's something like that. So that that uh, apocryphal or not, that is the story I heard of the origin of the name, the band name, Tangerine Dream. Interesting, but you never actually had a dream with tangerines in them. Uh, well, not that I'm aware of, although I'm not sure I've been remembering all of my dreams. It makes me lately. think of uh, the moment from Burning, the Lee Chang Dong film. Do you, have you seen it? I have not. You haven't seen, we should stop recording now so you could watch it. Um, but there's a great moment where the female lead pantomimes eating a clementine. And she's convinced that the way she does, if you do it correctly, pantomiming, um, you don't think about f- faking it. You don't think about just acting like there's actually a fruit, but your mind actually believes that there is a fruit there. And so she's peeling it. I think that's the closest to a tangerine dream we've actually had on film is that moment. It, sound, it sounds like she's inventing method acting or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like that, but anyway, it's a great film. Um, but to get back on topic, we're going to be talking about the films scored by the uh, band Tangerine Dream. And I think the best way to start that off is to ask, who is Tangerine Dream? Can you give us a little background on these guys? Uh, yeah, again, uh, I'm, not an, uh, I'm not an expert and... Uh, a, a decent amount of this information I have may be not entirely true, but Tangerine Dream is basically, they're, they're like usually lumped in with Krautrock, which is like the music that came out of Germany in like the late 60s, early 70s. And like all the different artistic movements that were coming out of Germany in the late 60s, early 70s, it was like an entire generation of artists whose parents and probably grandparents were all Nazis. So they had to kind of reinvent their culture. And they, they, you know, were trying to find new and interesting ways to do that. And so in film, you get new German cinema and you get Werner Herzog trying to like invent new myths and you get Fassbender trying to deconstruct the politics of human relationships. You get in uh, politics, you get a lot of progressive stuff tied in with May 68 that ends up getting 
very extreme and you end up with terrorist cells like Bader Meinhof. And then in music, you have crowd rock and uh, you have like Kraftwerk and they were from Dusseldorf and you have Cam, they're from Cologne. And then there's the Berlin School, which is largely Tangerine Dream and artists that were associated with Tangerine Dream. And um, their early stuff, their, their first record, isn't the sound that you know or that you think of when you th when you think Tangerine Dream, you think like synthesizers and electronic music. Their first, their earlier stuff was experimental in a different way. It was like tape loops and recording in weird spaces and stuff like that. But um, after the first couple records, they sort of got synthesizers introduced into the mix, and that's sort of when um, the sound that you think of when you think of a Tangerine Dream score. Uh, started to solidify and then the bulk of their reputation rests on that sound. They ended up doing, uh, I mean, they've been, I, I read somewhere that they have over 100 recorded albums if you're, if you're lumping in soundtracks and studio albums and they have a ton of live albums. Um, so th there's a lot of different sounds in there, but when, when you say Tangerine Dream, if it, if it rings a bell in your head, it's, it's that synthesizer sound that it really was, the basis for all of their soundtrack work. And I know that you have a really impressive collection of uh, some of their albums on LP. Uh, what are some of the original stuff, the stuff from the sixties and seventies before they got up into doing film work? What are some of the fil albums that you really enjoy well, mostly? Their first record is called uh, electronic meditation. And it's uh, a funny name because I don't think you'd have a very successful meditation to it, but it's, that's the one that's like, it's like <laughs> tape loopy and it's, you know, it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's not, it's not this sound. The, the al I, I, I get them, conf I have a bunch and then I get them confused sometimes. I, this happens to me a lot with music that's not lyric based. The ones that are, um, that sound like the soundtrack stuff are Tangram, Exit and Force Majeure. Some of the risky business cues are actually taken directly from force mature mm -hmm. and then phaedra and stratosphere are two of their i think those are the two like famous ones or that's i think those are the ones that people like know and they were kind of like hits if you can categorize any of these i mean they weren't you know climbing the pop charts but people bought those records yeah stratosphere is literally the only non-soundtrack album by them i own so it's the it's one really I know good the best. it's fantastic yeah, yeah. um I just love the untreated piano at the end of the final track, uh, Invisible Limits, it's called. I mean, just like they're, they're, they're totally surprises in the best of their music uh, on Rubicon Part 2. Um, it Rubicon's, sounds like... Rubicon's really good, too. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it sounds like early Angela, or not early, but pre-Angela Battlemente, the way there's suddenly these layers of guitars with synthesizer weaving in, and suddenly you have what sound like air raid sirens coming in like just all these sounds that are recognizable but at the same time the way they use them it's just like what am i listening to and yeah, it's funny that I, you say you know I think they're yeah. no go ahead i was gonna say it said we said you know you don't meditate to them because i when, it, when people say electronic rock you know or prog rocker uh you know in the same field as these guys i always think okay so what you mean like new age you kind of like blips and sound effects and things like that you that you kind of like I just have on the background while you're doing something else without really paying attention to. Tangerine Dream for me, though, is the exact opposite of that. It's yeah. something that really evokes emotion and mood and senses in a way that I, nothing else I can compare it to. 
Another album that's really good, and it's one of the early ones, is called Zeit. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's Z-E-I-T. I sometimes it's Zeit or Zeit. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a double, and it's, it, it's like about the nature of time, I think. Or I read that, and then I was listening to it, trying to process it that way, and it made sense. But yeah, no, I mean, they're like, they're not, it's not ambient music in the sense of like some of the, some of the stuff that came out of the stuff that Brian Eno was doing. It's like, it's evocative. It's, I, I hate using words like evocative. I always think of, um, what's it, what's that quote attributed to Elvis Costello? Like writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Like <laughs> word, words don't do some of this stuff justice, but it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it, it provokes and evokes great feeling for me. Yeah, I feel the same way. There's something, something very primal about a lot of the music, something just elemental in the work that, again, you know, it's it makes sense without making any sense. Yeah. And then when you hear like, oh, this is what they had in mind with this album, you're like, I totally get it now, even though but they also you never would have gotten that on your, there on your own. They also have at least two records where they started incorporating uh, lyrics is the wrong word, but they have like spoken word. It's sort of poetry. Sometimes it's like affected by a voice and it starts to sound like the worst version of what you think prog rock sounds like. Do you know what I mean? Like when Mm. prog rock goes bad, it becomes this. So they have like stuff that, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are people out there who think that that's their best work. I find them all to be creative misfires. But again, if you're putting out like a couple albums a year and you're putting out over a 50 year career, like 120 records, like you're allowed to do a weird synthesizer and spoken word piece about an underwater civilization or whatever it is that you know what I mean? Like it, it's, I don't know, like follow, follow your muse, man. You, you do you. So and, they, and yeah. And this is all, um, this is all founded by one guy who is with the band up until his death. And we're gonna we're gonna screw up his name left and right here. I think today, uh, Edgar Froze, Froza Froza. I think it's Froza. It's Froza. not. It's not Froze, which is okay. a thing that uh, millennials drink. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard I've heard Freeze. I've heard Froice. I've heard Froze. I've heard variations on Freeze. I uh, I yeah. don't speak German. Um, so I don't know, but Edgar is the only member of the band that's consistent for the band's entire exit. Well, I guess that's not true anymore now either because they're still around and he died in 2015, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but for up until, up until his death, he had been the only consistent member for the band's entire existence. So to a large degree, Edgar is Tangerine Dream and vice versa, but early, very early, uh, there were a lot of, uh, Tendry Dream was like, there were people coming in and out of the band for the first couple of years, one of whom was Klaus Schultz, who uh, was a, a very skilled musician. He's actually the guy, based on my understanding, who sort of brought synthesizers into the mix for Tangerine Dream and sort of set, like Edgar ended up being very interested in it, but Klaus introduced the early synths to the band. And then he ended up breaking off very early, but he had a super interesting career also, largely synthesizer based. Uh, it's like a, it runs like parallel to Tangerine Dreams work. And he, uh, he, he recorded an album that was also a soundtrack to a movie called Body Love that I've never seen. But apparently when Bowie uh, touched down in Berlin, you know, Bowie had that whole three year period where he kind of like was running away from Los Angeles. He was addicted to cocaine and he wanted to kind of get clean. And he moved to Berlin for a couple of years and he ended up recording at my 
favorite albums of his and also producing two of Iggy Pop's records. But one of the things that happened when he got there was he heard this soundtrack to this movie, Body Love, that Klaus Schultz made. And that also sounds like Tangerine Dream soundtracks. And then that ended up uh, encouraging Bowie to get into synths. And then he hooked up with Visconti and Brian Eno. And that's how you get uh, the second half of Bowie's Low, which is an amazing record. Okay. Um, but so Klaus was almost never in Tangerine Dream, but he was for like a year and a half and then he sort of like broke off. And then, so it's like, I mean, Tangerine Dream is, you know, they're like niche, but they're also like tied into the, you know what I mean? Like they're, they're tapped in and tied into the history of a lot of different things. That's interesting. I didn't know anything about him. I know kind of the, what's considered the classic lineup of um, Edgar with Peter Bowman and uh, Chris, Christopher Frank, who was the drummer. Uh, and then later on, the keyboardist um, Shemoling, I think is how you say his name, uh, Johannes Shemoling. Uh, right. And when then he there's came the into other the guy 70s. that replaced uh, Paul. Oh, God, I'm not. I can't remember his last name. Paul. Somebody replaced um, Chris when Chris left the band. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, with the soundtrack stuff, it was. Um, Chris and Edgar for the main period of the soundtracks were like the main sort of creative forces. And Edgar liked to do it kind of, um, he liked to record, not improvisationally, but he kind of like would like lay something down that felt right. And then he would just play it against the music to see what happened type deal, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and and, uh, Chris would analyze the cuts if he could and then sort of like mathematically work it out beforehand and then try to so he would design it to fit basically and mm-hmm. edgar would like get a feel for what he thought it was going to be and if they had footage he'd use the footage and then he would kind of like so they would they would they would work it out so that they would divide the sections that they knew how to score up differently so like if it was an action sequence it would be chris because it would have to be like time to the cuts or the rhythm or whatever and if it was more of like you know, an evocative mood section that it would be like Edgar's job. I mean, they were working in tandem, but they were also working separately. So, yeah, it's not just Edgar. I mean, as the creative force here, it's literally everybody kind of working together and bringing their own thing to the... Um, um, I'm just going to apologize at this point for not being a music writer or a musician myself. So a lot of my descriptions when we're talking about these are going to be like a lot of uh, extremely trite, uh, that thing that sounds like an electric shaver inside of a helmet of a rusty suit of armor uh you know expressions like that so but with that in mind we're talking about them transitioning into doing music for films uh i think the best way to get into that um and the question here we're going to do the subject we're going to do we're going to we're going to each pick eric this is my idea our three favorite tangerine dream scores written for movies and i think the best way to get into that is to ask you just what was your first experience with tangerine dream what's the first time you heard them in a film uh, I, I, uh, I think, I, I don't, I don't, I don't trust memory anymore as I get older. Not my memory, just like the concept of memory. <laughs> I feel like it's like a faulty, uh, recording device, our brains, but I'm pretty sure the first thing that I heard was when I saw Risky Business for the first time. And Makes sense. Yeah, I think, and you know, I, that movie to me... I think people have very different associations with it. I mean, I think a lot of people, when you say risky business, you think Tom Cruise sliding into the frame in his underwear, which is like the iconic image, or you know, like the basic premise, which is kids, his parents go away, he gets mixed up with a call girl, and then through a series of hilarious misadventures, he needs a bunch of money, so they turn his parents' house into a brothel while they're away for the week. Like that, that's how you know it. I, 
I remember seeing this movie, I don't know how old I was, but I was pretty young. And I remember this being one of the first things that like stirred up emotion in me or it made, and it was one of the first things I saw where I felt like, I felt like an author's presence to the thing I was watching. I mean, obviously it wasn't the first thing, but it was one of the first ones where I had a, I just had this like deep emotional reaction to the film. And I think that's two things. I think one, I heard Paul Brickman, the writer director, uh, and this is a paraphrasing, but he was basically like, his idea for the movie is, is like, what if you crossed Porky's with the conformist? Like, what if you huh. made a teen sex comedy, but made it about something and made it with cinematic style? So I think, I think he was incredibly successful. And I think that struck a chord with me. But I think really what's going on here is I was incredibly moved by Tangerine Dream's score to this movie. I think it, it like just triggered something in me. And it's, I, I mean, love, love on a real train parenthesis, risky business, close parenthesis, is one of my favorite pieces of music. I, and it's, but it's all nostalgia. It's all like, it's not that it's the most complicated song ever written. It's not that it's the best song ever written. It's like it triggers this thing in me. And all of my collecting all the records and all the tangerine dream interest and all of it just really stems from the way that score worked in conjunction with those images in that movie. And the image specifically for Love on a Real Train is uh, Cruz making love to Rebecca de Mornay on the, on the L, right? Yes, but, so, and that, I think that sequence is amazing and I could talk about it for hours and I think the way the sequence closes with the, with the train pulling away and then that, just that spark, I don't know if you remember it, but like that spark hits, like, you know, that whatever, when trains spark on the tracks, like it, it's, that sequence is amazing, but the song is, it's kind of the theme to the, to the movie and I think some of my resonance with it is actually the earlier sequence. It's when he gets suspended and he realizes his life is fucked and he, he takes Glenn's bike and he bikes into the city to go see Lana. Like they've already had a night together and then it like led to a bunch of things that are like destroying him. And he's just like, he's basically broken. And he just has this whole sequence where he bikes into Chicago from the, from the suburbs and in the middle of the night to go meet his call girl girlfriend. And it's that's the emotion for me. That's the that's that's where like that that piece of music or that version of that piece of music is like kicking on all cylinders. It's sliding away from your own life, basically. Yeah, it's just you know I don't know. Yeah. It's like a it, there's a little bit of I mean you know there's it's a little bit teenage angsty. It's a little bit anxiety ridden. It's a little bit of despair. But it's just it just to make I don't know just the, the idea that this you know. It's still ostensibly a teen sex comedy, you know, and like to have that, I don't know, the movie's sad. The movie has like sadness to it. Do you find that? I know, I don't think, I don't think you have the same reaction or relationship to this movie at all that I do. Well, I should, I should point out, I reveal that I, I only saw this movie a few months ago for the very first time. Um, this is not one I grew up with or anything like that. And I, in terms of music, if you ask me what I associate with it, it would be da 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 da, da obviously. Um, so I haven't had as long a relationship with it, but um, I, I definitely feel that in those famous scenes in the dream sequence with the shower, uh, I think the music is called The Dream is Always the Same. The Dream is Always the Same, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's those are definitely moments that make 
what could be a rote teen comedy very very memorable and a lot more than what it is my favorite track name is no future parentheses get off the babysitter get off the babysitter and there's also guido the killer pimp um there's a bunch of no 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 future get off the babysitter is amazing and but that's another sequence to to me that's a sequence where he's basically having like a sex dream and then and then it like devolves into an anxiety dream about whether or not he's jeopardizing his future. And that music totally, like, I just feel like there's a bunch of dreams in the movie. The movie, it, it's not surreal is not the word, but it's, it's like tapped into the adolescent male unconscious in a very real way for me. Mm. But of course, I saw it as an adolescent male. So I think, you know, I was primed to love it. More so than me, for sure. You know, I was reading that, uh, well, I'm just saying as a 40-year-old man, probably less able to tap into that. But uh, I was reading that Edgar actually almost turned it down at first. Well, because he was convinced it was just going to be a run-of-the-mill teen comedy. Well, because they were everywhere, right? Like, Porky's was already out uh, by this time. Um, I mean, this was, I think this came out... 83. So, but still, like, that first batch of, like, 80s, things were 80s like teen movies were already out and I think that I think because of the subject matter it was easy to conceive it that way and what ended up happening was they sent the uh they they like sent the script and I don't know if they sent a cut of the film or whatever but this track started coming back from Tangerine Dream to Paul Brickman and it was comedy music I don't know I've never heard what the original tracks were but they were basically like it was like the wrong vibe and he was hiring them because he wanted sorcerer and what he was getting was like something zanier. Rickman and the producer John Avnet ended up flying over to Berlin and working with them for 10 days and they ended up culling a lot of stuff directly from either tracks that were being prepared to put on albums or tracks that were already from albums and they pulled the stems and kind of reworked variations on them. So the track Lana which is the one that plays, which is another thing that seems like a dream sequence, even though it's just really supposed to be the, the events within actually happened within the diegetic world of the movie. But that's when they first have sex, when he first meets Lana and she comes in and she says, are you ready for me, Ralph? Because she, he's pretended his name is Ralph. And, the door, and then they start like sort of, they start making love and then the door blows open and all these leaves blow in and it's this crazy visual sequence and this is the song that's playing that song is actually directly from their force majeure album and oh. but what i don't know is which one came first if they had if that album had already been out or had already been recorded and they were like no this is the sound we want and then but then once they started doing that tangerine dream got what they were going for and that's where the rest of the stuff kind of came about but there's definitely i think it's tangram is the other recorded album that has uh, risky business material on it, and then Force Majeure is definitely where that entire track Lana exists as it is in the movie on that record. So Risky Business would be the first of your pick of your three favorite. I think Risky, yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's not impossible to separate from me. It's like Ground Zero. It's yeah, like that's where that's where that's where it all started. Where it all started in terms of Tangerine Dream uh, scoring movies, of course, was. Uh, your for, the aforementioned Sorcerer came out in 1977. Uh, great story behind that. Uh, William Friedkin saw the band perform in what he describes as an abandoned church 
in the Black Forest of Midnight in Frankfurt while touring The Exorcist around Europe. Pitch, <laughs> pitch, pitch black church. The only lights were the electronic lights from the instruments. He said you couldn't see the performers. He said it was a three-hour concert and that everybody stood there just in a trance and nobody made any noise. The whole crowd, it was packed. The church was completely packed, but everyone just kind of stood there listening to this music. And he described it as the sound was so loud, you could feel it throbbing within you. So I think it's fair to say that's when he came up with the whole idea of, you know, incorporating this music into uh, his film. Um, interestingly enough, the band didn't write to picture. The music came from their impressions of the script and Friedkin uh, talking to them. And he edited it into the film, which I think yeah. is really fascinating uh, when you think about how movie scores are traditionally done, obviously, when uh, composers see cuts of the film and cut it specifically to picture. Absolutely. I think it was actually one step further than that. I think he, he had the score before he shot it, though. He gave them the script and described it to them, right? Mm -hmm. And then they, they sent him songs. And then so he already had the songs in his head. Like, I think he knew. I, I think what he got them he while was he was. Do. I think he got them while he was on set. So technically, he was still shooting Maybe the movie. Shooting. But uh, as, when he, as he began editing, obviously, he had heard the music and had it in his head. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, so basically, yeah. But anyway, uh, Sorcerer is one of my favorite films. Um, and a huge part of that, obviously, is the use of the score, which I think is just unprecedented and probably unequaled since. I mean, just the way that, again, this music, this, this, this throbbing, pulsating thing just completely pervades the world of these characters and kind of at one point gives you hope that these men in this desperate situation are using their skills and their intelligence to defeat all the things stacked up against them. While at the same time, you just have this horrible crushing feeling that fate is not going to allow them to get where they need to be. Sorcerer, of course, is a, a remake of the great Clouseau film, Wages of Fear. And this was Friedkin's take on it. And even at the, even at the beginning, when you just feel that, that score of be, uh, betrayal, the, the, the great track betrayal used in this film, um, you just feel like there's this urgency that is not going anywhere, that has no destination. And I think that maybe comes from Tangerine Dream's ability to have these epic, almost unending, <laughs> you know, compositions that you can believe that, you know, these characters have nowhere to go in their lives, but they're desperate to get there as fast as they can. Yeah. It's like their score is like, it's always like the thing you think of is always this, like it's when you keep saying it's like pulsing or pulsating, but it's like, it's always, it always feels like it's going to be a chase, but like the destination is just despair. Like you're right. just running, you're like you're running as fast as you can off the cliff is what I, is like what the sound sounds like to me. Like that, that key Tangerine dream sound. I love the sequence where they're, uh, fixing the trucks. I mean, the movie's about, you know, they've got to drive this this unstable nitroglycerin across, like, an insane terrain, and the slightest jostle could cause it to explode. And so they're like, and they have these just beaten down, beaten up trucks that they then have to kind of, like, rebuild or, like, jerry-rig together in order to, like, make this journey. And there's this whole sequence where they start, like, they're just doing the oil change, and they're, you know, tuning them up, and they're trying, and they they even give them like a paint job, but it's all set to the synthy, like a classic Tangerine Dream track. And it's amazing. Like that sequence is amazing to me. 
Of course. Uh, that's amazing. That montage is great. And of course, the famous scene uh, on the bridge, especially the second truck going over the bridge, where you become so in that moment where you're so drawn into the intensity of that scene, you only gradually realize that the Tangerine Dream music has been there the whole time. Just kind of, it's kind of takes over the soundtrack so completely that you, that you realize like, like that's just part of the environment now. Like yeah. that's, that, it, it just marries the film in a way that is eerie. Which is insane because you're in this primal, like you're in the jungle. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like you may as well be like in a, in like, like Aguirre may as well float by. Do you know what I mean? Like we're like <laughs> in like a, like a like a jungle setting, and then you don't think of like pulsating synths when you think of like like a like a expect- jungle scape. But that's what like somehow it's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah, you don't expect the move to come up in this middle of the jungle. Um, but yeah, these synthesizers uh, seem like they wouldn't fit, and of course, it takes someone I think with the mind of Friedkin to realize this is exactly right. This is exactly what I need for these scenes. So yeah, I think that's another great contradiction there that, you know, any other filmmaker probably would think this is never going to work and just freaking found a way to, to make it work with this incredible score. So not only does it work for Sorcerer perfectly, like you can't, it's almost, you know what it's like? It's not like this, but it's, it's comparable to like using a, uh, Carol Reed using Anton Karras's zither score for Third Band, mm. like where it's just like people be like, that's not going to work, and then it becomes inseparable from those images now. Like the idea of like Third Man with the conventional score to me is, and I can't even, I don't even know what that would look like. Yeah, that's it, an excellent just, comparison. Just, yeah, yeah, it's like taking something that you, it's like really taking a risk and really nailing it in a way that that redefines things and. Redefi- I mean, this This is definitely, I mean, a lot of other people obviously thought so because that was the start of people asking them to do film scores. And eventually they realized that that was, uh, you know, an avenue to a larger audience and an mm-hmm. avenue to a larger bank account. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, great. They, that, yeah. yeah they, it's funny that when you think about, you know, Sorcerer being obviously such a huge critical and, and uh, commercial disappointment, and yet the, the Tangerine score was so amazing in it that mainstream Hollywood was like, we got to use these guys, you know. Yeah. This is an element of the film we got to tap into for our for risky business, which we hope is a huge success and a, a crowd pleaser. <laughs> it's, such a, it's, such a, it's still such a weird movie to me that I think it's weird that Freakin thought this was going to be his legacy sure but it's also weird to me that and it's who knows about you know the the what the public wants but it's weird that it was also a critical failure to me like it's such a clear vision it's such a like Mm -hmm. this is all in retrospect and you know what i admittedly i wasn't a huge fan the first time i saw it but i was going into it being like this fanatical wages of fear fan Hmm. and so i was kind of just angry that it existed or something and and it's the thing is that it takes it takes the departure point of wages of fear and it really has its own vision for it like Mm -hmm. uh clouseau is it's all about like to me i I would watch that movie and it's like oh this is how you build suspense like this is I know exactly what angle to shoot this from and exactly what angle to shoot that from and exactly how long these shots should last. Like it felt like it feels perfect to me. 
in the way each sequence is constructed. And that is not what Sorcerer is about. It's not about building suspense uh, like mathematically. It's about building a mood. So I think the first time I saw it, I was just like, this, it felt like he wasn't, like he was just after something different than Fuzo, and I, I really had blinders on. And, of course, yeah. You know, and now when I see it, I just, it's, it's, again, it's the feeling that I'm responding to. And you're right, that's, that's inseparable from the decision to use Tangerine Dream. Yeah, and I just got to, I got to say, and I apologize to everyone that I'm going to, we're kind of uh, getting off track here a little bit because when I originally talked to you about doing this episode, it was going to be about Sorcerer specifically until we decided that Tangerine Dream would be a cool uh, subject. When I was watching it recently, just the guy, when they're setting up the dynamite to blow up the log, right, or the giant tree that's in the yeah, way. yeah. Um, the way he jumps off of that log and runs and falls into the puddle and you're just watching it from a long shot and it doesn't cut and it's just him doing that. I was just thinking, you know, this is an amazing moment of this actor looking like he's doing something that could kill him. Yeah. Like jumping off of this giant tree and definitely hurting himself. And I'm sorry, but like, this is the kind of thing I want to see. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, Quinn Phoenix is really skinny in the shot. That's impressive, whatever. I'm talking about like real things in this film that you know just you, you can't even imagine how they were done even though you know all the tricks and everything um but to speak to you know why people went after this movie or why it wasn't critically successful people were gunning for freaking at this point you know being you know mr two hits hollywood prince obviously anything he did next was probably gonna you know people are gonna look down on it right away so there was that as well let me ask you this a little bit of trivia um, Betrayal we were just talking about which is the most recognizable piece of music in the movie uh, what other film used that I don't know. I don't expect you to know well okay. number one it's number, number one it's, it's the trailer for the Warriors they used it so that's one thing uh, that doesn't even count that's just the trailer that's not what I was talking about though uh, what okay. I'm talking about is uh, Sidney Poitier's 1990 film Ghost Dad what <laughs> <laughs> In a in a comedic context, or just was there some was this when he is it when Ghost Dad becomes Ghost Dad? And that's yeah, the, yeah, pretty much. It's <laughs> it's I hadn't remembered that I had seen Ghost Dad in the theater when it came out, but I did not remember this specifically until looking this up. Uh, the way he becomes Ghost Dad is he gets into a car with a crazy Satanist who is driving around. Uh, maniacally and like trying and like hitting everything and Bill Cosby's freaking out in the back and shouting you know stop this guy stop this guy and so you hear Betrayal playing during this whole sequence which is you know supposed to be you know humorous and fun but becomes this horrifying thing <laughs> because of this use of the music I checked the crew list to see who was associated with Sorcerer that came up to Sidney Poitier and said, hey, I got a great piece of music we should use for this hilarious scene. I can't figure out where it uh, came you, from. You, <laughs> I, could not, I could not make there was a no, There was no cross-referencing? No, the editor is a guy who's been working since the 70s, but he didn't work with Friedkin ever. So I have no idea how this that piece of music ended up maybe, in fucking Ghost Maybe Dad. Sidney is just, was just a big Sorcerer fan. That must be it. That must be it. He wanted to tap into the magic of Sorcerer with Ghost Dad. Uh, Bombach used, I want to say it's Love on a Real Train, but it's definitely one of the cues from Risky Business in Squid and the Whale, I think. When the younger brother starts, I guess he's starting like, he's like, just starts masturbating at school. 
Mm-hmm. Like it becomes this thing. It's like this whole like B plot in the movie, and like one of those sequences is set to. I, I I haven't seen it in a while, but I think it's Love on a Real Train, which just becomes like a again. That's like a it's like a nostalgia triggering music cue, or it was for me. I don't, you know what I mean? But I don't I don't know. Noah Bombach taking his cues from Ghost Dad yet again. Uh. <laughs> uh, last thing I'll say about Sorcerer. This is just a cool coincidence. Uh, I'm going to plug uh, this new remastered release of the soundtrack on LP from Waxwork Records that includes new linear notes, uh, liner notes by uh, uh, William Friedkin and amazing Tony Stella artwork on the cover and all throughout the packaging. It is absolutely gorgeous and it just came out. So I am definitely picking one of those up. I have shamelessly plugged that because it is truly an awesome thing. And I, I don't know if it, has additional music because I know Friedkin didn't use everything they sent him. It's the complete score. So it's everything they sent him. Wow. I happen to also know, I don't know for sure, but Paul, oh God, I lost his name again. Paul, bear with me, Tuesday. Paul Hasslinger was a late, he's the guy that ended up kind of filling uh, uh, Christopher Frank's role after he left the band. Okay, yeah. But this was like, he's like mid eighties. He was only in the band for a couple of years, but he did a lot of the soundtrack stuff. So he wasn't there during this, but the story he tells is that a lot of the stuff they sent for the, for Sorcerer was just stuff that they had already written that they had lying around. So some of the stuff was conceived based on their impressions of the script. And then some of the stuff was just like, I guess send them this. We, we didn't put this on a record yet. I don't know if that's true. Mm. I know that that's the story he tells on the Miracle Mile Blu-ray featurette. I, I choose to believe it in that case. <laughs> uh, but anyway, Eric, uh, give us your, your next favorite Tangerine Dream score. So I feel like mine are like the iconic ones. And uh, well, and, and Sorcerer's an iconic one. But uh, Michael so you're not, not going to be picking the, the, bars, the park is mine is what you're telling me. I don't even know what that is. There's so many. No, you, you were talking about like when we were prepping for this, you were, you were naming movies. You're like, I think this is on Amazon Prime. I'm going to watch it. I'm like, what? Did they do that? I don't even know what that is. Like, I know there's a couple that I haven't watched. And I own some scores to movies that I haven't watched or tried to watch and still can't find. One of them is Flashpoint, which is like a Chris Christopherson cop joint with uh, who's the uh, Treat Williams. And then... Uh, there's another movie called Heartbreakers, which is some kind of romantic drama from like the early 80s, like 83. And as I was, I was listening to the score, not bad, a couple of good tracks. Uh, there's also like, it sort of diverges into funk at one point. Like if you can imagine a Tangerine Dream song with like a funk bass line, sort of. I feel like somebody's gonna listen to that and be like, that's not funk, but that's what it's <laughs> But that movie stars Peter Coyote, was directed by somebody who ended up directing something called the John List story for television. And it was shot by none other than Michael Ballhouse. Oh, very nice. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, the great Michael Ballhouse of Fassbender and 90s. uh, Yeah, yeah, my favorite DP of all time. He's great. Yeah. So uh, I will say, anyway, Fla- I, as I said before, when you mentioned Flashpoint, I've never seen it. I immediately think of the uh, Dennis Hopper, Kiefer Sutherland movie flashback, <laughs> like that midnight run ripoff uh, where he's a hippie. 
It seems like that should have a Tangerine Dream score too. Who did the music for that one? I have no idea. I have to look it up. And then when uh, you say uh, Heartbreakers, I just think, what, the Sigourney Weaver, Jennifer Love Hewitt comedy? Well, if you try to watch it in 2020, that's what will keep popping up. And you will never find the Heartbreakers <laughs> from 1983 scored by Tangerine Dream. But you will see lots of images of Jennifer Love Hewitt. That's heartbreaking. So other things you can't find. The score, before I do my next one, the score that I was going to be on my list or was at least going to be a close fourth for my top three is Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's uh, vampire film, Near Dark. Uh, Tandra Dream did a great score to that movie. It's another one of their iconic ones. And again, it's got those driving synths and the driving beat for like suspense chasey sequences for a good deal of it. So it's like kind of that it's exactly that feel that you think of when you think of a Tangerine Dream score, or at least the one that I, what I think of. And that movie also somehow completely unavailable. The new, the, there was an old, there's a great old DVD set that's now out of print, uh, unsurprisingly. There's a newer Blu-ray that's also out of print. It's not on any of the streaming services. I mean, this is, this is a great, great movie. It's one of, I, it's a great vampire movie. It's just a great movie, period. It's, it's got a great Bill Paxton performance. It is a crime that this, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously some reason. I know it's not because it's just, there's some rights reason or whatever, but it's just, it's not on any streaming service. Like you should be able to rent that movie. People, I should be able to tell people about that movie like I'm doing literally right now and people should be able to go rent it and it's not possible. The Blu-ray is for sale on Amazon for like $90. And the only other thing I want to say about it is the, the the newest print of the movie, the cover, is like this hot Twilight version of the movie. Like it's got all the same characters, but it's literally like it's like in their same poses as as Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson from like the like it's trying to be like this is a vampire movie. It's also got a young male lead and a young female lead and they like each other. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's definitely trying to like, maybe we can sell it this way. Very funny. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that movie because I've seen it many times, at least half a dozen times in my life. I always forget the Tangerine Dream did the score. It's, it's just not something I associate with them. Maybe, maybe it's because um, John Parr's Naughty Naughty is so uh, prominent in the bar scene where they kill right. everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe that that's just the music is, that I immediately think of. Well, because there's that sequence, which is like the it's it's one of the great. It's got to be one of the great. Like it's genuinely terrifying. Basically, there's like a lock. Like these these this crew of vampires comes into this bar and locks the door, and like so there's all these people are trapped in there with them, and then you just like there's all this anticipation of what's going to happen, and then when they start really te- like they they terrorize them before they cause them physical harm and it is awful. And then when the, and then when the physical harm happens, that is also awful. I mean, it's amazing. Bill Paxton is fucking phenomenal. He's one of the vampires. He's amazing. Yeah, he's amazing. And then James LaGrose does get away. So there's that. Oh my God. Um, I forgot James LaGrose <laughs> in it. Oh my God. You just made me so happy. Um, but I cut I you off, you. Eric, I cut you off before you were going to say your next favorite, your next pick. You didn't. Uh, I just you, went on a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> you, um, said, you said Michael Manns and now you can go ahead and say the keep. <laughs> I, uh, I did see the keep in the theater once and uh, the keep is a whole other conversation, but no, Michael Manns thief which is another key Tangerine Dream score. It's another situation where Tangerine Dream wasn't the original idea. Michael Mann originally wanted to have like a Chicago blues soundtrack because the movie's very much of Chicago. But I think, 
like a lot of people in this era, like early to mid eighties, people were getting seduced by sounds. It's just the Tangerine Dream sounded new. It now, I think to a lot of people would sound very dated. It sounds very much of its time. There are specific synthesizers that created a specific sound that create this Tangerine Dream score sound. So it sounds very eighties, but at the time it felt very cutting edge. And so anyway, Michael Mann ended up going with Tangerine Dream and they created, this is another one of the scores that feels like a complete work. It doesn't feel like it's patched together from other, other things. I mean, I don't know a lot about the writing of this particular score, but when you play it all together, it feels very much like a score. This is another one that does some good stuff with electric guitar synth combos, which is not something like a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the other scores are like primarily synth based. This has a lot of, uh, a lot of elements to it, but it, it's another one of those things where you can't separate what this movie sounds like from what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, the film itself is very of its, its time, you know, and I say that in a good way, you know, I mean, it's a beautifully stylized film. Uh, I, it's great that I, you know, I always have fun, you know, rewatching stuff when we're about to talk about them on the podcast. This one in particular, because Michael Mann for me is a guy who, you know, I was obsessed with him for a long time and then kind of had a phase of like, ah, you know, Michael Mann, I get it. I'm over it. You know, and I kind of move on from there. Uh, to come back and rewatch Thief and realize, holy shit, this movie's incredible. You know, this is a fucking it's like, masterpiece. It's like, watching, it's like watching Strozik again or something. Yeah, like, yeah. First, like, you're like, no, I've, I saw it 10 times in my 20s. I don't need to see it again. And then you watch it and you're like, what? There's nothing else like this movie. Thief is like that too. It's like, it just, it, it's, I don't know. There's something, it's, it, it's very much an early film. You can tell, like, because he, he, I feel like he's throwing everything in there. He's trying everything he wants to try. But it also feels like there's something precious about it. Like, you can tell it's like a script he, like, tried to make perfect in a way that, like, he'll let himself, like, sort of, like, branch out more later in his career. This feels like, like, the, like the, 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 the plot and everything, like, the mechanics of the film all feel like they end up being, like, carved out of glass. Like, they're, it's all very, it's all very tight and precise, much yeah, like the character. But, uh... It is, but but for for film though, that feels like it could go a very standard. You know, it's like the guy who is is you know an expert thief, and then he's going to try to you know change his ways and see how it goes. And is it going to go well for him? What do you think? You know, there are so many surprising moments that really make this movie. My favorite moment in this movie is when he visits Willie Nelson in, in prison, and uh, and then Willie leans forward, his breath is oh, on the glass, and he my says, "God, it's insane! Get me out of here!" And then. The sting, that's where the Tangerine Dream music hits right there, right after he says the line. I had forgotten that that's exactly where the music comes into that scene. It's so it's not eye, just... It's on, it's on his eyes. Rea- it's on, it, the sting is like on James Conn's reaction. Yes. It's like, really, like he's visiting his friend in prison and his friend is like, is older and near the end of his life. And he's just he's like, what can I do for you? And he's just like, get me out of here. But he says it like in this low voice. It's amazing. And then, and then he does this thing with his eyes. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson's only in like two scenes in the movie. Basically just this one. And it's, I, I don't know how he does what he does. It's amazing. But yeah. I actually, it's funny you're saying this because I, what did I write here? Um, oh, I guess I didn't write the whole thing. I mean, it literally moved me. To, it moves me like to tears watching that sequence. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it's as much Willie Nelson as it is James Conn's reaction. And you're right, as it is the score hitting at the right place. 
you're, you're absolutely right. It's both of those things. It's the him saying it and then the surprised reaction. Absolutely. It's just everything about that moment. It's just awesome. And obviously the most notable, I think, moment uh, is the use of the beach theme because... <laughs> So, go ahead. What? No, I mean, I mean, in terms of the music, it's just a nice kind of transition into that moment where they they have the perfect heist. You know, something you don't see in movies a lot. Like this heist goes perfectly. They get in. They have the control of the place. What's his line? He says, "Like we own this place now, or whatever." They yeah. have the full control of it, and they can take all their time, and they're going to steal everything. And it went off without a hitch. And no. there's this, so he has, you're right. And the way the sequence is built is there's this reaction where this, the theme starts coming in and it's this like building kind of atmospheric noise while they're, while he's already cracked the safe, this impenetrable safe. And now his, uh, his crew, his crew is like collecting all the, all the, all the goods from the, from the safe while he kind of like slowly sits down, admires his handiwork and has a cigarette. And then that keeps building and building and building. And you're right. Then it transitions into like their victory sequence. Right. In the movie it works and it comes like, you know, two thirds of the way through. And it's this, this kind of transcendent moment on the it's, but the thing about that beach theme is that that's the most eighties computery sounding song. Mm. And on the album, it's the first song. And so yes. I, I somehow like what it doesn't work <laughs> without the movie. So I never. Yeah, yeah. Put, oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never play Thief. Like I'll put Near Dark on. Like I'll just put it on and like listen to it. And I'll put Miracle Mile on and I'll play a bunch of their albums. But like I never put Thief on. And it was only this weekend prepping for this that I realized I fucking love the Thief score. It's so good. I just never want to listen to beach theme. I don't actually <laughs> like it, but I'm just sitting alone. Like I don't, that's not, and like, I never want to like play through it on the album. So like the record never gets any play. Um, also the beach sequence also has the one false performance moment in the movie. Jim Belushi where, bounding out of the ocean. Yeah, Jim Belushi bounding out of the ocean. <laughs> and then James, Jimmy Collins like, we're going home tomorrow. I just got the call. We're going to collect. And he just goes, he just slaps his hands and goes, oh, that's great. And you're just like, what? Nobody does that. Nobody like, <laughs> nobody like claps their hands like that. And re- that's like a thing that you do when you're miming something. That's not a real thing for a movie that's like so, like, so like, successfully minimizes Jim Belushi from most of his <laughs> right and minimizes like like exaggerated performance. Like he made Jim's, James James learn how to actually crack safes so that he could look like he knows how to crack a safe. Like all of this work went into the performances and then somehow that slides by. Just Jim Belushi, just being that other Belushi. Like, you know, (laughs) unfortunate. Well, it's funny too. I mean, going back to that moment with Willie Nelson, because I couldn't figure out what uh, track that was uh, of the soundtrack. I probably just did research deeply enough, but it's so anonymous in a way, you know, and so doesn't insist on itself the way the beach theme does in that sequence. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I don't remember what the name of it is called. Sorry. No, I'm just saying, I think that, yeah, it's just, uh, works more subtly than beach theme does when it's built on such a big moment, but I think it does work in the moment. I think it does work in the movie. Oh, it um, absolutely works in the movie. Transition. Like, it's fine. I just feel like, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean you, if you're... Uh, you understand what I'm saying, right? I like, understand, you know, absolutely. Like you come home from a hard day at work and you're like, ah, you know what would make me feel better? Beach theme. <laughs> you know, 
it's a good moment for uh, anyone who sympathizes with career criminals uh, to turn the movie off, obviously, before things go to shit. So uh, <laughs> play it out with beach theme. The end of the movie, real quick before we move on, the end of the movie is amazing because it's like, it's so, it's like everything that's happening is happening in reality, but it's also everything's so like symbol-laden and metaphorical. Like the guy is literally like, okay, I made a decision. The only way to fix this is to literally blow up my life. So he literally blows up his life. <laughs> like he kicks his wife out. He blows up his new suburban home. He blows up his used car business. Sorry if you haven't seen the movie. I'm definitely ruining it. But the, 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 you, could, so you, you definitely know where it's headed early on. You're making me think of the other false note in the movie. That he could keep $400,000 in cash in a shoebox. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe oh it's God, just I mean, a check. You know, it's a money order. Also is Robert Prosky. Yeah. Is just so good as the crime boss or whatever you call him. Like this kind of like modern crime boss who's got his fingers tied into real estate and he's somehow funneling all of his heist money into building malls in Dallas, like the greater Dallas Metroplex. Like it's, I don't know. He's, it's, it's an amazing character and it's an amazing performance. And then when he, he, he comes on, like, like the whole trick is that he's like, he's like your dad. He's your grandpa. He's just a nice old man who happens to dabble in crime. And then the second you cross him, he turns into the devil and it is fucking terrifying. <laughs> the sequence is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like, he's like Santa Claus and then suddenly he's like evil Claus or something. I don't know. Pedro yeah. Negro. He's very scary. <laughs> Um, wait, was that another Michael Mann reference? It was. <laughs> we do stuff like that all the time. On this uh, I'm going to uh, go ahead to my next pick, uh, which is a movie called Legend that came out in 1985. And I'm going to say sorry, Eric, for making you watch this movie. I know you didn't enjoy it. You me. owe me $3.99 plus tax for my iTunes rental. This movie is unwatchable, but I will let you go first. <laughs> no, that's good. That, that plays into what I want to talk about with this score. Um, because as we were just saying, you know, how Tangerine Dream wrote this piece of music that does not work except within the context of the movie. I think it's the opposite case here. Uh, it's important to note that this score was written in three weeks. Uh, following a disastrous test screening of Legend, uh, after which MCA uh, convinced Ridley Scott to dump the Jerry Goldsmith score for something that could appeal more to the youth audience, which I guess at that point was Tangerine Dream. So it was done very quickly to replace this pre-existing Goldsmith score, which is not terrible. It's not great. Um, it's not. I'm I'm a big Jerry Goldsmith fan. It's not one of my favorites of his. Any stretch of the imagination. Um, and the Tangerine Dream score is one of my favorites. It's really amazing. Um, the film itself is pretty dumb. It's, it's, uh, uh, I, there's this old Harlan Ellison anecdote where he talks about chatting with Ridley Scott and Ridley Scott telling him, who do you think is the David Lean of science fiction and fantasy films? And Ellison says, I don't know who the David Lean of science fiction and fantasy films is. And Ridley Scott says, it's going to be me. I want to be that guy. <laughs> and so this is like right after Blade Runner comes out so I'm thinking he's just like well I'm going to go from you know I'm going to do my horror science fiction I'm going to do my Philip K. Dick what is reality science fiction and then I'm going to do a unicorn movie 
with fairies and and goblins and sprites and uh, and the devil. But it's not just that it's like it's like a miscalculation. But like, dude, I can get with fantasy, man. Like, I will I will talk token. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm mm-hmm. into like elves. I like I think the name Galadriel is cool. Like, I can get into the shit. You know what I mean? Like, yes. But like this script is like uh, the parody. Like if you if you were like writing a parody of a fantasy movie written by a twelve year old, it would be the script. Like it makes the lines of dialogue are unreadable, unlistenable. Also, Tom Cruise, the expression on his face for his entire performance is I don't understand the direction you just gave me. Like it looks like Ridley Scott said something to him. He's like, I don't understand this line. And then Ridley Scott explained something and then just started rolling the camera. And so every shot starts with him. There's like a little bit of fear, like he doesn't know what he's doing. He spends the entire, every shot he's in, he's right next to this little kid playing an elf. And this little six-year-old kid acts him off the screen in every scene. Tom you know, Cruise has you know who no that idea. kid is, right? I recognize him, but I can't place him. That's the kid from the Tin Drum. Oh my God! That's that's why I know who he is. That's amazing, David Bennett. All of a sudden, I love this movie. Yeah. No, I I think basically the problem with the movie is exactly what you're saying. Ridley Scott wanted to do his unicorn movie, but that's where the idea ended. Uh, there, there's based no on a novel. Just... Based on the novel. No, I'm asking like, what was it like? Where no, was the source no. material for this? What did this, hired... did this guy write the screenplay, or he hired this guy? He hired. Uh, and I can never remember how to pronounce his last name, William uh, Jorgensen, something like that. He wrote the book that Angel Heart is based on. That's what he's best known Oh, for. cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that's immediately like, oh, this will be cool. But uh, it's not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it also just... makes no sense. Do they live in a tree? <laughs> because they also have sophisticated mechanical clocks. But they're like living in it. Like there's nothing in the tree. And then there's like these—I don't know—it's so much severe of severe lack of creative decision. But at least they were able to burn down the James Bond stage at Pinewood Studios when they were making it. So there's that. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, speaking of <laughs> Pinewood Studios and weird things, the Pazuzu statue that Father Marin finds at the beginning of The Exorcist—he like yes. uncovers it in northern Iraq, and that's how Pazuzu is like set loose into the world. Or I don't know if that's what's supposed to be happening in that movie. But that statue is just in the swamp in legend. And then in the very next scene, it's also very clearly visible in some cave that's taking place in a, that's located in a completely different part of the world. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. I know uh, that this doesn't matter, but it's like so iconically noticeable. And it's so, it's just like, it just, it literally seems like someone was like, like on the set and just saw it there and then just plopped it into the shot. They're like, this will look cool. I don't know. I'm glad you noticed that because it's actually going to set me up perfectly for this segue back into Tangerine Dream uh, because I think it's connecting Tangerine Dream films because Sorcerer opens that first shot has that demon carved into the rock that's obviously supposed to make you think of Pazuzu from The Exorcist right away. So there's a little connection there. Little Tangerine Dream demons popping up. Um, The the Tangerine Dream cinematic universe, there's crossover. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Uh, so anyway, I want to apologize to Legend fans. We're not big Legend fans, but I will say this. The 2002 Ultimate Edition DVD released by Universal 
has an option. Well, number one, it comes with the director's cut because Ridley Scott always has to always has to have his fucking director's cut for every movie, uh, where he puts the Goldsmith score back in and yada yada. But the second disc has the theatrical version and comes with an option isolated music score mode that's crazy dude yeah i was literally thinking while i was watching it i can't, i did not know that what you just said and mm. i was thinking as i was watching it okay the script is terrible and weirdly ridley scott is somebody i think of who also understands cinematic space in a way mm-hmm. that sometimes i think his brother doesn't but but he's also a guy who does like he's good at production design but he can also do space this movie does not have the space aspect but it does have the production design and I was thinking like, oh, what do I like about this? Well, I love the costume of, mm-hmm. of darkness. I love the production design and I like the score. I just wish all these people would shut the fuck up. So that sounds perfect. I should have watched that. Version. It makes this movie incredible. Just alone, if you, if you uh, go to the scene where Mia Sarah's character, Lily, is seduced by darkness, right? This faceless dancer in a gorgeous dark dress shows up and starts dancing in front of her and then pulls her up and they start dancing together and then suddenly they merge into one person so that Lily has become, is in the dark dress and has become like this corrupted person. Uh, and then followed by darkness's uh, first full reveal when he comes through a mirror or something and then he's tall in front of her. Watching this with just the Tangerine Dream score for this, which is called The Dance, it's like an old silent film. With That's an amazing. amazing symphony playing over it. And it becomes something completely beautiful. And you can see that they're, they're mouthing, you know, they're, they're, the banal dialogue is going on back and forth between them. But it doesn't matter because all you can hear is that Tangerine Dream score. Oh, and dude, it's a beautiful I, production. I, I, that's all I wanted. That's all, literally <laughs> all I wanted. And I wanted it. I was like, this looks okay. I could turn I could just mute it. But the whole reason I'm watching it is for the score. And there was no way to separate the words from the score. This yes. Is how I wanted to One more thing before we move on. The other thing I will say is that I was, I think I mentioned this to you and you were like, well, peop, there are people, oh no, I was mentioning the movie to somebody else. And they were saying like, well, I know people that grew up with it that love it. And I was thinking about how I would have reacted to it if this was a movie that I knew really well from it being like one of only three videotapes I owned as like a five-year-old or something. Mm, yeah. yeah. A different reaction to it. And it made me think of uh, Willow. You know that movie? Sure, of course. Yeah, okay, of course, sorry. <laughs> I was really into that movie when I was a kid. And as I get older, I'm thinking back on it. I'm like, was it bad? I haven't seen that movie in, I don't know, 30 years. And like I'm wondering, like, is it is it possible it's not as good as I remember it? It's probably probable that it's not as good as I remember it. And I was just really into it because it was like appealed to child Eric. So I wonder if uh, I bet there's a there's a way to have a nostalgic reaction to this movie that I'm not having. It's possible. I'd like to think that I have to give my you know six seven year old credit self credit. And think that I would have right, fucking yeah. hated this movie. Like, this, this movie's a piece of shit, right? It's, just, it's like uncomfortably bad. I just imagine it being too boring and maybe in some parts too scary, cutting off like a unicorn's horn and stuff like that um, for kids to really appreciate. But I know it's guys fans, so, you know, power to them. Alan speaks in rhymes. Jesus Christ, it's awful. <laughs> um, I will note that even before, you know, uh, even before switching back to the Jerry Goldsmith theme for the director's cut, uh, there were some problems with the Tangerine Dream score, mainly that they took the unicorn theme that they wrote and then turned it into a song called Love by the Sun, 
which uh, is not good. The lyrics that they wrote oh. for it, not Tangerine Dream, but rather the people who wrote lyrics for it. But that's the song uh, that's over the it. end. Of, that's the song that's over the end of the movie, right? <clears throat> no, the that, version that I yeah. saw. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's it. That's the one that has the lyrics like "Legends can be now and forever," teaching us to love for goodness' sake. Yeah, that's the one. The one thing I will give to it is that it's sung by John Anderson from Yes, who also did Christie for "Scream for Help," which is a a great song that I love from a movie I love. So I'll give it that. But otherwise, terrible perversion of the Tangerine Dream music, which is otherwise phenomenal. Eric. What's your next pick? Yeah, I'm worried that we're running out. Of, I guess there's no time limit, but uh, I'm excited that we're here, that we're going to get to squeeze it in, which is this amazing movie that I feel like the people that know it love it, and a lot of people don't know it, and it's called Miracle Mile. Yes. Um, this, this movie also has, I keep saying the same phrase, but like the, it's, it's one of those scores where it's like, this, it's like, this is what you think of when you think of a Tangerine Dream score, like electronic drums, synths, like it's like a pulse it's everything feels like a chase sequence with building tension but there's also atmospherics um the movie okay so the way it's like working in perfect tandem with the score because the the concept of the movie is batshit crazy and it sort of doesn't make sense but the movie attacks it without it just doesn't give you a second to worry about the fact that it's sort of absurd and that's how the score sort of functions within it like where it just propels you through the night. The premise of the movie is a uh, short version is uh, Anthony Edwards goose meets a girl at a museum that he falls in love with and has plans to meet her at 12 o'clock sleeps through his alarm. And then when he goes to meet her, she's gone. He's supposed to pick her up at the diner where she works, but he answers a phone call from a ringing payphone outside the diner. And on the other end of the payphone is a guy who's trying to reach his father and who's in a panic and who's in a missile silo in North Dakota and who tells Anthony Edwards that we've launched our missiles. World War III has started. And in about 70 minutes, the Russians will be firing their missiles back and they'll land and kill everybody. And so this Anthony is like Edwards, three o'clock in the morning. This it's three o'clock in the morning and he's outside a diner in LA and he has to decide if he's like a, whether or not to believe it and then B, how he's going to get the hell out of here. And, and then it just becomes like, it's not like real time literally, but it basically becomes like a real time hour and a half attempt to just get out of Los Angeles before world war three starts and nukes the entire city. And it feels exactly how you think that would feel if it were happening to you. It's this movie is amazing. The first time I saw it, I had that feeling that you were saying of like, wait, what's what's happening? Why where are we going with this? Like, what is this? Where are we leading to? And then that moment from the poster towards the end where he comes out and all the there's just all the cars and the chaos, and he's ends up underneath the cars and the guy's chasing him, trying to shoot him. That's when it clicked for me, like, holy shit. I get it. I yeah, get this like movie. You're, you're watching it fall apart. And then at one point, he's just like on a roof waiting for a helicopter and Kurt Fuller is there. Uh, how would how, how do people know who Kurt Fuller is? He's Russell from Wayne's World 1. He's, <laughs> he's a character actor. You'd recognize him if you saw him. But he has this amazing performance where you, see, you were introduced to him earlier in the movie and he's kind of this asshole who doesn't believe what's happening. And then when you see him again later, he's like... He's, his pants are half undone. It's unclear what he was doing to this dead body that's on the roof. He's drinking. He's taking pills. He says he wants to get off at the moment that the, like, he's just, he's like lost his mind. And it's amazing. 
just so much about this movie is amazing. Yeah, it's great. And um, the Tangerine Dream score really just kicks in, like you said, um, when they all when they're all kind of initially panicking when he is kind of convinced the other diner patrons and staff that they need to get the fuck out of there. And Denise Crosby's like, I got connections at the airport that can get us to Antarctica, wherever they're going to go. Uh, and then they're all climbing onto that truck together. Uh, the score is called Truck Scene. And it is just this intense, just pounding. It's where the drums start kicking in, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I, yeah, but that scene also, like he's in the diner. So he, first of all, he randomly intercepts this phone call, right? Which, what are the odds of that? And then what are the odds that you randomly intercept that phone call? And then you're also in a diner with a woman in 1985 who has a mobile phone who used to work for four different senators who she's able to call and determine that they're all on their way to Antarctica to verify the story. Like th- those are the things that happen throughout the movie that you have to like, just go with it because there's, that's obviously absurd. <laughs> yeah. The movie somehow like it's conceived and directed in a way where you're just, you're so caught up in the, in the anxiety and the adrenaline of it that like, there's no time to like at one point he like runs into a gym and finds somebody who can like fly a Huey. He's like he's like, is there anybody here a helicopter pilot? And some guy's like, I am. And like it's like, it, but it's like you, by that point in the movie, that doesn't seem crazy. It's it's really <laughs> I can't I can't I don't know how to describe it. Like it sounds well, insane. yeah. We just get caught up in that chaos. So that in that truck scene I'm talking about, you know, there's he's like he's yelling like we got to stop and get Julie. And this some guy says who's Julie? And he looks, he goes, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. We never, like, we never even saw that guy get on the truck. How is he even there? <laughs> right. And you just realize, like, it's just, thing, the situation is becming so it's completely... All, it's all things falling apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's great. I want to say, uh, do you know Three O'Clock High? I do. I, I think that's a perfect double feature for me is Miracle Mile and Three O'Clock High. They both have a lot of things in common. Um, they both have, like, this dreamlike quality to them dream slash nightmare quality to them um they both have their main characters watching nature shows at one point <laughs> they both open with a voiceover that does not come back anytime later in the movie and uh they both involve handing characters wads of money <laughs> when you need uh, something from them true, true. There, yeah. there's tons of stuff there's tons of connections but uh obviously the main connection is the tangerine dream score it's not nearly as prevalent in three o'clock high Really, it's only one scene, but it's the most miracle mile scene in the movie. It's when Casey Semesco, who's been targeted by this bully who's going to beat him up at three o'clock, um, decides he's going to get detention uh, by seducing his English teacher. And it's this completely batshit crazy scene because he's just talking this complete nonsense about reading some erotic novel for his book report. And she's getting into it. <laughs> And it ends with him like kissing her and the class is just mesmerized, but it's a scene that feels like it's from a dream. And it also feels completely hypnotic the way a lot of miracle mile does. And that's the main part where they play the tangerine dream score that I love so much. Uh, And it really reminds me of the moment from miracle mile when he's just racing with her in the shopping cart for like a long stretch. Like he, he, she's taken like a, a, a Xanax or something like she's out or a Valium and he, puts her puts her body into a cart and then he's just like wheeling her down just wheeling her down an empty street and she wakes up she's like oh hi and it's just this insane like a drug stupor and yeah it's just so zany yeah the tangerine uh, uh, music is called through the dark slash run across the street and it's kind of a reprise of 
an earlier uh, track called Cigarette Bird Sleep. I even love the, the, the names of some of these tracks on well, They're always like what happens in the movie, but then it's like beach theme or... Yeah, right, like, because the they come one is by because the, way, the reason he sleeps through his alarm is because a bird picks up his lit cigarette that he flicked off the balcony, and then, it, and then he carries it to his nest, which starts a fire on the roof of the building right near the transformer that's the main power source for the building. <laughs> and this then blows out the power, which causes his alarm that ticket. Like, it's, it's absurd. The absurdity starts right at the top of this movie, but it never feels, it feels dreamlike, but it never feels, it only feels crazy when you describe it afterwards, like a dream. Like when you're in it, mm-hmm. it's, it's really, it really has a dream logic to it because everything feels imperative when you're in it. But if you try to describe it later, it doesn't make any sense. It's, Absolutely. It's like, the movie is well worth watching. And well, I, I remember I had heard about it years before but I couldn't find it at my local video store when I was growing up. And it wasn't until uh, I ended up finding it for the first time at TLA video in Philadelphia in like, this would have been like 1999 when I was there. And that's, I remember bringing it home to the apartment I was living in and getting like, I was so excited to watch it. And I can't believe that it like, I had built it up in my head and it lived up to its expectations. It lived up to my expectations. Um, Another factoid, since this is supposed to be tangerine dream based, uh, Paul, guy whose name I keep forgetting, Paul Hasslinger, who was the guy that joined the band sort of like later in the 80s and did a lot of the soundtrack stuff for, the, for their like mid to late soundtrack era. Uh, he says that uh, some of the tracks on Miracle Mile are actually reworkings of tracks from Risky Business. They went back and sort of like repurposed them. So they're different but they're, they're, like, they're like the stems from the original Risky Business that were then reworked. I forget exactly which track. Um, really? They did that for yeah. So they were, they were, in, they were, but they don't consider it like, it's not theft. It's like, they're like, they like, he describes it like, like you're t- taking it, like taking some, attacking something from a different angle. Like you're like, okay, well it was working this way in this dream sequence in Risky Business, but what if we used it for this chase sequence here, like how would that, how could we play it? Like what if we added these drums, what does that do to it? So the, the root of one or two of the tracks is actually literally the same root from Risky Business. Well, it's the old John Fogarty defense, isn't it? Uh, when John Fogarty released um, Old Man on the Road, right? Uh, the rest of CCR sued him because it sounded so much like Run Through the Jungle. Uh, and the judge ultimately uh, ruled in favor of uh, Fogarty because his conclusion was an artist is allowed to sound like himself. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Uh, great movie. Um, still a huge sleeper, but uh, more people should discover it. Absolutely. Uh, so my final pick was going to be Firestarter. Uh, Firestarter is probably the first time I noticed Tangerine Dream uh, because it's a very cool score in that movie. And because uh, the most notable track, Charlie the Kid, is uh, completely evokes the feeling that you're going to get through the movie of, you know, a daughter and uh, his, her father and the tragedy in this film that they are first hunted and then that they're separated from each other and then ultimately it will end tragically for them. So I really like that it's kind of a more tender Tangerine Dream score, but I really don't have much more to say about it than that, I realize, uh, other than it's, it's, it's a good soundtrack that I enjoy. 
So I think I'm actually going to, yeah, go it's ahead. Another, it's Firestarter is another one that I will put on sometimes. It's, it's a good atmospheric score. I like to, when I'm writing, I like to have stuff that doesn't have lyrics. So Tangerine Dream gets played a lot. Uh, like when I'm using music sort of that way, but I'm not, it's not exactly in the background. It's like informing the mood I'm in. Mm-hmm. So Firestarter is one of the good, Firestarter gets played more than some of the other scores. Definitely a very solid standalone soundtrack. Absolutely. And it is, yeah, and it feels, it feels like it's a work, like it doesn't feel like a collection of songs. It feels like this is all the same movie. It has mm-hmm. a theme to it, you know, so it, it's a good, it's a good album and a good score. It's solid, but I couldn't really think of much more to say about it other than I guess it's their most goblin-like score, kinda. <laughs> I don't know. Again, this is not a musician talking here. No, um, but it's a horror movie, so they were kind of like right. doing that, or maybe that was informing it. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I think we're actually going to talk about a film I discovered uh, when we decided to do this because it was free on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a film called Shy People from 1986 by uh, the director uh, Andre Kanchalowski. Kanchel- who some people know as the director of Runaway Train and others know as the director of Tango and Cash. But this was a film I knew nothing about going into it. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie I don't know if I'd recommend to people outright, but it's a weird movie. It's kind of melodramatic and cheesy, but has genuine moments of like haunting beauty and gothic horror throughout it. It's beautifully shot by Chris Menges, who's a great cinematographer. Um, and it only uses about 60 seconds of Tangerine Dream in the movie itself. But, but is the it moments... Listed? Are they credited as like scored yeah. by Tangerine Dream? Wow. Yeah, yeah. They get their opening credit and everything. But the mo- I, I feel like uh, Konchalowski just made a conscious decision at some point that he wanted a lot of the film to be non-scored, you know? But yeah. the two big moments that use Tangerine Dream are incredible. Um, the, the first part is when they're entering the, the plot is that um, oh no and I have to remember the actor's names that he wasn't prepared to go into that <laughs> give me one what second what happens when you change it's Mar- 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 Martha Plimpton <laughs> when I change oh, it last Martha, Plim- Martha Plimpton's in it Martha Plimpton is in it she is the daughter she's uh, like a drug addicted daughter of uh, Jill Clayburn who is um, like a big city lady uh, who wears these uh, giant giant bracelets um, but she she's a writer Jill Clayburg is a writer who decides she's going to go into the bayou to discover her extended family and write about them because she knows nothing about them because they're all sort of estranged and it turns out to be Barbara Hershey and her three grown sons and they're the very definition they're the very portrait of like back backwoods hillbilly types you know one of the sons is very low intelligence and another one is just kind of creepy and horny and there the whole time they keep one in a cage and it's never really explained why he seems like a normal guy it's just completely strange so immediately it's just you meet these this family and you're wondering what is the dynamic of this family they all seem to believe that their father who's probably dead is actually alive and is watching them somehow so like they wow. and they're all so never explained a lot of this is never explained they're they're so terrified of the father that you know they won't say a bad word out loud about him because they're worried that he'll do something to them there's also a fourth son who is um whose photographs have been whose face has been completely scratched out of all the photographs because he went to town and started in a normal life and barbara hershey just believes she's dead to her since he abandoned the family so into this environment come Jill Clayburgh and her daughter, Martha Plimpton, uh, wearing a fantastic talking head shirt, which I am sad to report 
gets ruined in the movie um, <laughs> in a really horrible way. But um, so you got that. And it's again, it's just like a weird tone to this film where it kind of half wants to solve the problems of this family. On the other hand, wants to say, hey, let them alone. This is their dynamic. This is how they live. You know, like just let them do what they're going to do. So again, so when they're entering the bayou for the first time, when Clayburg and Plumpton are going into this jungle down south and they're in a boat passing all the, um, going into the completely losing civilization, that's when the first Tangerine Dream starts and it is absolutely incredible. But even uh, more so when they come back into civilization and they're passing all these giant, like it's like these giant industrial islands where all these all this machinery is going on and I don't know what, you know, is happening, but it's just this disgusting for miles of industry that they're they're driving this boat through and the tangerine dream score is so haunting there's a giant uh piece of machinery on top of a mud hill and you just immediately think sorcerer because it's this metallic monster on top of this big muddy hill so again it's just it's one of the things really good job of making this sound amazing that's good because i was worried that i was completely blowing it by (laughs) not having prepared to talk about it um i mean i I also i I know you introduced it as like i don't know if i'd recommend it it's certainly weird and interesting but like the things about it that are interesting sound awesome yeah i'm really glad i watched it it's i mean it sounds like it has the balls to not answer all the questions like or i don't maybe maybe you're just withholding the ending from us like a good uh, spoiler-free podcast should but it sounds like it, there's an element of mystery that is one of the something that i would like, like it's, that it's yeah it's not it doesn't feel the need to solve all of its mysteries it's yeah like yeah i mean i might be making it more mysterious than it actually is although uh i mean there's just moments that are very that make you think about miracle mile make you think about sorcerer again where they're like you know they're they're stuck out in the middle of nowhere and they're desperately trying to get away and it's just like Martha Plimpton clinging to this tree in the middle of the swamp with like, and you see like crocodiles or alligators, you know, swimming around her and it's just complete dead silence other than nature that's all around her. And again, I think this is the reason that he kind of made conscious decision not to overwhelm these scenes with music. It's the kind of movie that ends with a shot from an airplane of the full moon and then a, a quote from revelation. You know, it's, it's a weird <laughs> movie. <laughs> Um, but again, I am going to check this out and report back. Uh, it, it, it makes this counterintuitive idea, I think, with the score where it uses Tangerine Dream where it will be most effective and doesn't, you know, try to let them kind of run away with the movie. It's just like you use it perfectly for when they need it. That is one of the things I feel like some of these movies, like, like with Risky Business, it feels inseparable with my memory and with the feel, like the emotion that that movie conjures up in me feels completely inseparable from the score. But there's there are large stretches of that movie where there's no Tangerine Dream score or it's, you know, there's Talking Head songs, there's Phil Collins songs, there's like other musical elements to that movie. And um, Thief is another one where it feels like all over it. Firestarter is a movie where the score feels like super present. But there's other ones where it doesn't always feel... Like it's when you remember it, the things that the score is doing are so strong that they feel like like a very memorable part. But then if you go like by minutes of the movie that are scored, it's actually quite few. I don't think there's a ton of score. I guess there is a Miracle Mile. I don't know. I feel like I just think that it's used different. Like it can be, it's so powerful that it can be used a small, like a small amount will go a long way. Yeah. Well, I, again, I think that really for me, 
what works with Tangerine Dream so well is that they be, when they become so imbued into a film like Sorcerer and like Miracle Mile that, you know, it just, you don't realize you're listening to it. You don't realize wh- how it's affecting you because it's such a part of what's working about the film at that exact time. Yeah. It's, it's always, it's always about how the film feels. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, I guess all music is working that way, but it just, I don't know. It really, somewhere when I was young, man, it, it like, it flicked a, flipped a switch in me and it, it just, anytime I hear that sound, it just, it triggers it for me, man. I'm like, I'm hooked. Absolutely. The, o- the only film I want to watch where I'm absolutely focused on the Tangerine score is Legend Isolated Music Score Mode. <laughs> I, I would say, like, that's something I want to do, but I still feel like, I, like I, I, I definitely want to try to go through the rest of my life without revisiting Legend in any capacity. Regardless of my love for Tangerine Dream, I... I it's bad, man. Like I, I was traumatized by. I I won't be able to unhear the stupid shit I heard those characters say. <laughs> so even if you remove the dialogue, just seeing those that fucking goblin wave the fucking wand around is gonna make me. It'll it'll like reconjure it for me. Can't do it. Not going back to it. I understand entirely. Um, I just had a few fun questions to just kind of get us out of this uh, at the end here. Uh. What is a film that does not have a Tangerine Dream score that you think should have one? An existing film. Oh man, do you have an answer? And I cannot listen to your answer and think about this while you're talking. I do have an answer, although it might be derivative of the fact that they did Miracle Mile. It's After Hours. Oh, that makes a ton of sense. That'd be super cool. Wait, now I can't remember what the After Hours score sounds like. Who did who did the music to After Hours? Good question. Good question. Not tangerine dream. <laughs> okay. Um, no, that's a good answer. Um, yeah, I don't know because it's such a weird question because everything I'm thinking is like, oh, well, it would have to be something from the 80s, but it doesn't have to be something from the 80s. Of course not. Do you know, do you know what I mean? So yes. like, like what would uh, oh, you know, what? the Mohicans look like if they, if, <laughs> no, but I'm serious, something totally anachronistic, something that's like set in the 1700s should have no, like, like much in the same way the atmosphere of Sorcerer, the jungle, doesn't feel like it should have synthesizers, right? Like, what if, mm-hmm. what if, what if, and I love the score to Last of the Mohicans, but like, what if something like that? Yeah, the Randy Element score is genius, obviously. It's, it's amazing. Uh, Trevor Jones, yeah, it's incredible. It's, yeah. Yeah, I, I recently bought. There's some alternate re-recording. I bought like a like a copy of it on wax on, on vinyl, and it's a. Uh, but like, I guess it's it's not. It's the same score. It's like the written score, but they hired like a new orchestra to come in and do it. Or this is they had done this 20 years ago, and then released that recording on vinyl, and it's awful. It's just off. It's like it's a lesson to me in in like what a conductor does. I think because somehow they're playing the same music and it just feels dead. All the stuff in the movie, like when I hear the score, I listen to that score when I work out sometimes. Like I love like all the, the main tracks. I know this has nothing to do with Tangerine Dream. My brother does the same thing. That's weird. <laughs> I swear to God. I, I, I'll be on the treadmill thinking that I'm chasing down Magua. But um, <laughs> no, but the, yeah, the, the new recording is awful. Anyway. Very, very 
Tangent, sorry. I do think that that's a good answer, though. I would be curious to see what Tangent Dream would do with Last Night Mohicans. Uh, Howard Shore did the music for After Hours. I should have known that. Uh, but we, I, both, we both should have known that. That's and not in, on you. That's on us. And in looking it up, I realized another one that could be a cool Tangerine Dream score would be Bringing Out the Dead. Super cool. That's a great answer. That would, that's a better answer than After Hours, I realize now. <laughs> uh, and then, what, did I have another question? I did have another question. I don't have a good answer for this next one. Okay, should we just skip it? <laughs> we can go ahead. <laughs> we think you got the same one. Um... What's a, what's, a, what's a movie by Tangerine Dream that you don't know that you haven't or scored by Tangerine Dream you haven't heard the soundtrack you um, haven't seen the movie but seems like it must be the secret masterpiece if you had to guess I don't know how to answer that but I think if I flip that I'm actually curious after just listening to the Flashpoint score like literally an hour before we started taping this I'm like oh what is the feel of that cop movie like I know it's got Chris Christopherson on the back of the cover and I know, you know what I mean? I know he's in like a sheriff's outfit, but then the score didn't quite feel like what I thought that picture looked like. So now it's more like, it's not that I want to, I know what the score sounds like. Now I want to know what the movie feels like. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Uh, well, I mean, but, uh, but I mean, except that's not that interesting because what I imagine the movie feels like is a bad cop movie is what I think it probably feels like. <laughs> Otherwise we would know what it was, but uh, yeah. That doesn't deserve the Tangerine Dream uh, <laughs> score. Well, they did. They did a bunch of these. So, yeah. what? Uh, do you have an answer to your own question? Uh, I thought it has to be uh, Deadly Care, the TV movie with Cheryl Ladd as a nurse who descends into a nightmare world of substance abuse from the director of Hoosiers and Rudy. Uh, David Ann's Paul. Rudy. Rudy consistently makes me cry, and if it comes on TV, I have to finish it. Uh, that you're speaking for everybody, my friend. Okay, good. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was the one thing I was going to have to ask you to edit out of the podcast. Thanks for backing me up. Of course. I was like, I made it all the way yeah. to the end, and then the last thing I said was crazy. It's not this, great. This whole this Rudy, whole Rudy this makes everybody cry. This entire episode was actually constructed to get you to this moment, Eric. This was just a trap. It was a trap. He's like, what if at the last minute I find a way to mention Rudy? And then Eric starts crying. Before you start crying, I want to say thank you, man, for doing this. This is, uh, this is a fun talk. Thanks for having me. You don't, yeah, it's, uh, I'll talk about Tangerine Dream any day of the week. Although, I guess I could take a couple of weeks off because we just did an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I want to come over to your place and just listen to your LPs all day. Uh, this is a great band, and they're just such a unique and weird collaborator for these people, you know, for these films uh, from the time like that they were people, working. For, for people our age, it's also like this, there's some, they're, they're a very small part, but like an important part of like our like movie life met, you know what I mean? Like they were doing all these scores when we were kids. So a lot of these things we saw when we were young and like, again, for me, a lot of this is like nostalgia. It's like that, 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 that sound feels like something from my past and it like triggers something for me. Um, so it's like in a way, like the, the datedness of the Tangerine Dream sound is like part of its appeal. So I feel like it, I feel like it hits guys like you and me, like right in the sweet spot. There is that. I mean, that I think plays to the that unfamiliar familiarity, right? That thing that you just can't exactly nail, but it's that moment that you remember. 
I think is what you know is imbued in a lot of these scores. Uh, yeah, you you uh, we should end there. That was, that was we will end there. Excellent, excellent description. <laughs> thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you to our um, thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Uh, we are excited to start this new year and continue our two podcast a month uh, slate and have one podcast be about the movies and one be about books. Chris Funderburg will be joining me for our next book podcast in which we're going to be talking about uh, Hard Case Crime's new release of uh, a great Donald Westlake book that has been out of print for several decades. It was originally called Enough and now it is being re-released as Double Feature. So that will be the next episode of the book podcast. Uh, Thank you everyone and everyone have a great time.